0: This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello friends, welcome back. Today I'll be talking about three conditions of being a disciple, these three things well, perhaps the most important things that we need to keep in mind as we walk with the Lord. However, before I get into that, I'd like to mention a few things. As usual, if you have any questions, any comments, anything you'd like to share with me, any topics you'd like for me to talk about, feel free to drop me a line at the email address ancientpaths@cantrell.cc. at cantrell.cc. I've recently heard from several listeners, and it's been nice to interact And get some feedback. And as a matter of fact, I would like to share one thing that a listener sent to me recently. He's a friend also. I know him in person, not just as a listener. And my friend mentioned Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and striving toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3, 13 and 14. And my friend wrote, God very kindly told me that I lived Philippians 3, 13 backward. I was forgetting the things ahead and reaching for those things behind. (laughs) I really like it. Amen. The ways of God are that we move ahead and we forget what is behind and we keep moving ahead pressing on towards that goal for which God has called us forward, heavenward, in Christ. And my friend said, (laughs) I was forgetting the things ahead and reaching for the things behind. Amen. That is very encouraging. Let us all forget the things that are behind and reach for the things that are ahead. The other thing I'd like to share just very briefly is something that's come up in a few conversations I've had recently. As I record this, the military situation in Ukraine continues, and many people are being displaced or under intense pressure. I was speaking to somebody who was under that sort of pressure recently, and this came up again just a few days ago, and I've been thinking about it for a while now, because we also are impacted by the decisions that are made in the halls of power in the capitals of the world Decisions that are made that affect millions and millions of people. It's always been that way. And here we are in the middle of a situation like that. And as I've said many times, I've been praying this prayer. Lord, help me go through this well as a Christian so that I can help others go through something similar later. One of the answers to that prayer, asking God to show me how to go through something well as a Christian, is to look at something that happened in the life of Christ just actually before he gave up his life. Jesus met with Pilate, and just as a little bit of a background, if you remember, he was sent to Pilate by the Jewish leaders, because, as they said in John chapter 18, verse 31, that the Jews had no right to execute a person. The Roman state had that right, and the Jews couldn't kill Jesus legally. So they went from a religious court to a secular court, so that Jesus could be killed. Oh boy, it's really terrible. And Jesus meets with Pilate, which is really remarkable to see how Jesus interacts with Pilate. I'm sure that Pilate had had situations like this where he was talking to a condemned person, and that person would beg for his life or plead or make arguments to save himself, and Jesus didn't do that. He was silent mostly. He didn't fight to defend himself. So the chief priests and the officials, they're calling out to Pilate. They're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate answered to these Jews, you take him and you crucify him. As for me, I don't find any basis for a charge against him. And the Jews kept insisting, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. So that's that religious law. And they're saying he must die, but they're not going to kill him. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside to the palace. And he goes to Jesus, and he says, where do you come from? But Jesus didn't answer him. And Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And this is what Jesus said. You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. And that's what I've been thinking about. The people in charge in this world those people who make these decisions, those people who have authority over us that impact our lives, they would have no authority unless God had allowed them to have that authority. Pilate would have had no power over Jesus if that power were not given to Pilate from above Pilate. And so here we see Jesus completely aware that he is not submitting to Pilate, he's submitting to the will of God. He's submitting to the authority that the Father has given to Pilate, and that authority then is God himself. And I've thought about that. The people who make these decisions about me and my life, affecting my life, my family's life, the lives of my friends, the lives of millions and millions, they would have no authority unless the Lord had allowed them to have that authority. And this is true in the New Testament. It's true in the Old Testament. God is sovereign. Sovereign. And he uses these ungodly, worldly powers and authorities to ultimately work out his will, his good will. Everything works for good for those of us who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Even Jesus being condemned to death by Pilate worked out for good. And Pilate would have had no authority over Jesus unless the Father had given him that authority. So if I'm in a meeting, if I'm talking, if I'm being interviewed, where people are asking me questions about this or that, people in authority over me, I can say, well, they would have no authority over me unless God had given them that authority. I can be at peace in that. Amen. And that's been an encouragement to some people I've had conversations with recently. Well, now I want to turn my thoughts to the topic at hand. The title of this talk is These Three Things. I'll do a little bit of introduction before I get into what are these three things. My purpose in these conversations is to encourage believers. This podcast, the talks that I have, are primarily for people who have committed themselves to following Jesus. Now, there may be some people, and I'm pretty sure there are some people listening right now, who are not followers of Jesus. You've heard of Jesus. You're listening to this, perhaps, because you want to know more but you're not following Jesus, you haven't committed yourself to being a disciple. And some of the things that I'll share, I hope that it'll encourage you, hopefully things that will help you understand better the ways of God if you're not a follower of Jesus. But the primary focus here is to encourage believers. And I hope that together, we, followers of Jesus, will really hear the Word of God today, even as I speak. I don't want to be presumptuous, but we want to hear the truth that God has for us. Now, often when I visit churches in various countries, people will ask me, what is God doing around the world? And I know that I live a very different kind of life compared to most people. Surely almost everyone listening doesn't live the kind of life I live. I travel a lot. I minister in many different countries. Russia, of course, the USA, Estonia, Romania, Montenegro, Congo, Uganda. I travel quite a bit, but not as much as some other people do. And I have some experience in churches in various cultures. And so people will ask, what is God doing in the world? What is he saying? And this is really the context for my talk on these three things. What is God doing? God is calling his people out of the world system and into the kingdom of God. He is calling people to make an exodus. He is calling his people to come out, to come out of this world culture, to come out of these world systems, but not just to come out of all of that corruption, but to enter into his culture, his kingdom, and to realize that God's kingdom is completely different from the kingdoms of this world. I'll say it again, God's kingdom is completely different And it's not pleasing to God if we embrace the world while we try to embrace his kingdom, to keep enjoying the things of this world and still keep a little bit of a presence in his kingdom. No, God is saying you must come out. And he's saying that in different cultures around the world. Jesus said it this way, be in the world, but not of the world. We can be in it. He put us here in it. For his good purposes, but we are pilgrims in this world. We're passing through, and pilgrims don't settle down. We don't set our roots here. We don't come to depend on the things that are provided by this land. We're passing through. God is calling his people to come out. And that looks very different in different cultures because different worldly forces can work their way into the church in different cultures. I've talked about some of that previously in other talks that I've given. But I want to mention one thing right now as we lead into a discussion about these three things. I want to mention one worldly force that can work its way into the church, and it is working its way into the church, in the USA and in Western countries, and it's getting into countries around the globe as this global culture encroaches into other cultures. You know, I've talked about it before, I'm going to talk about it again, and this worldly force is marketing. I've had a previous episode on the topic, but I feel like I should talk about it again, because many people are not aware of this worldly force of marketing, and it's, a, it's an idea, it's a secular idea that has taken root in many, many churches. What I'm going to say may challenge some of you. Well, what is marketing exactly? Well, the idea is, I have a product or a message, and I want to find consumers for that product, and so I package and then advertise my product or my message in such a way as to attract consumers. That's marketing. I've got something I want to sell, I need to find somebody who's going to buy it, and I need to put together a package and advertising. In marketing also, there's a sense of competition, meaning I want to package my product in such a way that I can compete against other people who are selling something similar, so I can win. I can win in that competition. And there's also more than a little bit of manipulation. David Pawson said that marketing and advertising is the manipulation of human desire, So the thinking is, if I present the message in the right way, then I can cause people to want something that they don't want otherwise, or they don't really need, and then I can have the outcome that I'm looking for, which is I'll make money, or I'll have a lot of consumers. And in marketing, success is defined by increasing numbers. Usually success is defined by increasing money, but it could be we've got more customers, more people using the platform. It could even be fame, an increase in fame. I want to contrast that with what we see in the scriptures. Let's look in the New Testament. John the Baptist was not very good at marketing. There were people coming out to see John the Baptist. And what did he say to them? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, we read, When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, God loves you, and he has a plan for your life. <laughs> no, that's not what John the Baptist said. And by the way, just as an aside, evangelism in the Bible never starts with a discussion of God's love. I'll leave it at that. Well, did John the Baptist say God loves you and he has a plan for your life? No, no. He said, And when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming out to where he was baptizing... He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. (laughs) That is not good marketing. Jesus himself was terrible at marketing. He would heal people and then he'd tell them not to tell anybody about it. That's remarkable. He would heal people and tell them to be quiet about it. In John chapter 6, thousands of people are following Jesus. He just fed them miraculously fish and bread and they followed him. And he turns around and he knows that they're following him because they want some more food. And he says, you have got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me. And thousands turned away. They said, that's too hard. Well, it is hard for us even to think about. But for a Jew, well, they'd been told to never, ever drink blood. And here a carpenter from Nazareth says that? You have to drink my blood and eat my flesh or you have no part in me? Oh, that's not good marketing. Jesus built the church without a marketing department. He built a global organization with billions of members. And he built something that never gets smaller because when a member dies... They still don't lose their membership. Jesus was supremely successful, and he was anti-marketing. Jesus, John, Peter, Paul, they were all bad salesmen. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, then you've got to deny yourself. Well, that's terrible marketing. That's the actual opposite of marketing. Self-denial as a way to grow a business? <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about these three things because that's the first of the three things. Self-denial. Marketing is completely ever-present, particularly in American culture. I've told this story before. I'll tell it again to illustrate. Two young fish are swimming along in the ocean. They're young. They're full of themselves. And an older fish comes swimming by, and the older fish says, The water is wonderful today. And the old fish just continues swimming on. And after he's gone, the two young fish are remaining there. And one says to the other, what's water? Marketing is like that in American culture. And I dare say in Western culture, and it's creeping into other cultures as well. Marketing is everywhere. It can be so thick around us that we're completely unaware of how marketing influences our thinking. We can begin to see people as resources to be used up for our ministry. We can use manipulation to get people into the church building. We can manipulate human desire to get them to come into church meetings. And there is a saying, the way you catch them is the way you keep them. We try to manipulate people to come into services because they're fun or engaging. And well, then we have to keep people in churches Through that same kind of attitude. But Christianity is not a product. Christianity is not something for which we try to find consumers. We're not competing with other churches. We're not competing with the world. We're not competing. Christianity is not a product. The church and Jesus, the body of Christ, presents the truth. The Lord wants us to present the truth with power and authority. Jesus is not trying to sell a product or make us feel good about ourselves to gratify our worldly cravings. He is bringing truth, the way of salvation. He knows that people are on the path of death and they need to leave that path and be saved from that downward spiral to death. And there's another idea that goes with this marketing and sales mindset. This is something we hear in the States pretty often. The customer is always right. If you're running a business and you're interacting with customers, you always have to deal with them and assume that they're right and try to meet their needs. Now, this attitude is not so true in cultures that uh, did not historically have a service economy. I live in a culture like that. This was a Soviet communist culture here in Russia for 70 years. And there wasn't a service economy. The state owned all the shops. The state owned all the factories. And so there was really ultimately no competition between different companies. You didn't have to make the customer feel like they're always right. There was no competition there. But this idea that the customer is always right, that gets into the church, And we may have church buildings full of people who have this idea. And it's so deeply ingrained in the culture that people may not even realize they're thinking this way. This is what a consumer in a church might say. The church is selling something. I'm a consumer. The customer is always right. If I don't like the way this church is packaged, if I don't like the way things are, if I don't feel good about my church experience, then I'll go church shopping. (laughs) Some people say church hopping, some people say church shopping. And there it is, right in the language of marketing and consumerism, church shopping. I'm going to go find a place that makes me feel good about myself. It's not always true that people would approach church life that way. There are times when we have to leave some fellowships because they're not walking in the ways of God. But this consumerism is creeping in, it's so deep in now. Well, Not only is the customer not always right in the church, the first step of becoming a Christian is to admit that you're wrong. That is the very first step. Not only is the customer not right, the customer is wrong in the church. (laughs) The very first step to becoming a follower of Jesus is to admit that you've been wrong. And that's what repentance is. Now, the word repentance, it has a lot of different cultural meanings and cultural baggage to different people. And the word repentance may seem like a word that you bash somebody over the head with. Repent or burn, you've heard this, you know, repentance. That reminds me of a story a guy told me. He was at a conference, a church conference, at a big hotel. I can't remember where. And it was one of these big conference centers, a hotel with a lot of meeting rooms. And several meeting rooms all emptied out onto a main hallway, a main hall. And as they were coming out of their Christian conference, there were other conferences that had been released, and everybody was coming out for lunch. And he had a big old study Bible, big, thick, leather-bound study Bible. And as he came out of the meeting, he saw up ahead of him a friend of his walking. And so he was going to go up and play a little joke on him. So he went up with that big Bible, and he hit his friend on the head, back of the head, and bam, hit him with this Bible and said, repent or burn. And the guy turned around and it wasn't his friend. It was a man from one of the other conferences that was happening at the same time. (laughs) My friend was so shocked. And what do you say then? Oh, I didn't mean it. Well, you know, so that's the kind of thing that we can equate with this word repentance, but it helps me to understand what the Greek word is, how it's really translated. And I've talked about this a lot, but I'm saying it again because it's good to be reminded of what's true. Repentance, the word repentance, is the translation of the word metanoia. And what metanoia means is a new mind. That's what repentance is. Repentance is saying, I have been so wrong in my thinking, and I've seen things so wrong over my life, and I need to see things from God's perspective. I need to think the way God thinks. I need a new mind. So it is a confession of sin because anything that is not on God's pathway of life is sin. Most of the sacrifices of the Mosaic law were for sins that people didn't know they'd committed. I talked about it not too long ago. We are guilty even if we don't know we're guilty because this is what sin is. Anything that is not on the pathway of life, is a sin. Anything that is not in line with the character and the will of God, that's what sin is. Anything that is not of faith is sin. And this sin can be willful or unwillful, but regardless, we're born into it. It's not like we choose it. It's just the way we are. We're on the pathway to death. Apart from Christ, we are all on the pathway to death. And the scriptures say that Jesus didn't come to condemn people. He came to save people. He didn't come to condemn them because we're already condemned on that pathway to death. Jesus came to help people get off of that path and come into his path of life. Moving from death to life. And Christians also need to repent. Repentance isn't just a one-time thing. We need to continually renew our minds, continually have a new mind, to continually be transformed. We need to take our thoughts captive to Christ constantly. It's very easy to let our thoughts run off and be very worldly, secular, ungodly, and we need to take those thoughts captive to the ways of God. It's the renewing of our minds and ongoing repentance. And these steps to becoming a Christian are first, repent, and second, believe. Those are the first two steps, and they're very often said right together with one another. Repent from sin and put your faith in Jesus. Admit you're wrong, but also put your faith in the risen Lord. Admit fault and then turn to something that is supremely better. These four steps of being born into the kingdom to repent, to believe, to be baptized, and to receive the Holy Spirit. Those are mentioned in the book of Acts, steps that we take as we're born into the kingdom. And so, finally, now I land on these three things. The three conditions of being a disciple. This will be a reminder to many, and it may be news to some others, In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to those that were walking with him, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. These three things. The first step, the first thing, is self denial. And that is the opposite of so much that's in America and Western culture, which is rooted in hedonism and self concern and self love. American culture, in large part, is one of self-gratification. Even in our founding documents, we're encouraged to pursue happiness. Well, I don't think the Lord wants us to pursue being happy. He wants us to pursue being holy. I saw an advertisement a while ago that epitomizes this worldly attitude. It's really laughable when you think about it. It was a company that was selling pajamas, sleepwear. And the little advertising thing that they had written there said, Prioritize self-care with our luxurious loungewear. (laughs) Prioritize self-care by buying our pajamas. Boy, that's a sales pitch. And that is the opposite direction of self-denial. It makes me sad and indignant that this language of prioritizing self-care has so easily found its way into the church. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, the first step is to deny yourself. The second condition is to take up your cross. That's what he says. And imagine the shock when people heard him say this because he hadn't yet gone to the cross. They did not have the perspective that we have now. It would be like me saying to an American audience, you need to take up your electric chair. At that time, the condemned man had to carry his cross to the place of execution. And then the cross, the place itself, was a place of sure death and shame, a place of suffering and pain. And Jesus says, you have to take up your electric chair. You have to take up your noose. You have to take up your cross. Well, that's not good marketing, is it? But it's true. It's very true. People then, when they first heard the Lord say this, surely would have reacted with horror. And many were probably confused when he said that. Well, what does he mean? Well, many people have spoken about what it means to take up a cross. But here I'll just very quickly say there are two things that Jesus did on his cross that I can do on my cross daily and you can do. One thing that Jesus said on his cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, we can say that often. A part of taking up our cross is to recognize that there are people around us who do terrible things to us, but they really don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. These are the people that were putting him to death. And I believe those men were forgiven for that. doesn't mean that they were saved, the father hears the prayers of his son. We can do this too. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Another thing that Jesus said on his cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we can do that every day as we surrender our lives in whatever circumstances he has for us. We can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Carrying a cross was the sign of condemnation, going to death. The cross itself is a place of death to self. It's a helpless place of death. You can't save yourself on a cross. And followers of Jesus need to be in that place. That's a condition of being a follower of Jesus. It's a willingness to bear hardship, a willingness to bear shame, a willingness to suffer for the sake of the Lord. A willingness to die for the sake of Christ. The third condition, Jesus says, is follow me. In Greek and in Hebrew, the word for faith is the same as the word for faithfulness. There's no distinction in Greek and Hebrew between having faith and being faithful. Being a disciple is not defined as just a moment, a point of decision. Now there is a moment when you cross from death to life, when we immediately move into a life of faithfulness, of walking with him, following Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, you've got to finish this race. It's not just one point. It's not a moment. It is a life of following and walking with God. It's very possible, and it seems common in my experience, to start well and to end badly. Now, I know that I've got people from different generations listening to me right now. We have some students. I know that we've got young families, young adults. We've got older folks like myself. And all of us must finish the race. All of us need to walk with Him all the way through to the end to follow Him, to leave things behind And let him choose the path to go wherever he goes, to follow wherever he leads. We need to listen to him, live with him, submit to him, rest in him, work with him, abide in him because he is the way. It's his kindness to tell us that we're on the wrong path. And it's his kindness to show us the right way. And not only is he showing us the right way, he is the way. We should not build our lives on his teachings. We need to build our lives on him. And as we do that, then we'll just naturally follow him and follow his teachings. The Christian life is not a set of religious beliefs. Christianity is not a series of ethical precepts to which we give mental assent. Christianity is the flow of life as we abide in Christ. That's one of the images that Jesus gives us. Abiding in the vine. Life flows from the vine to the branches, bearing eternal fruit. And that's what he wants for us. And that's what he wants with us. And Sometimes, the things that we deal with The sins that so easily entangle and bring us down, they don't need to be healed. They need to die. When somebody has cancer, you don't heal cancer, you kill cancer. You have to kill those cancerous cells. That's how you heal the person, you kill the cancer. And there's much in our lives that rather than trying to make it better, it just needs to die we need to say, that's the old. That's the old me. That's the old stuff. I have a new father now. I've been adopted into God's family. I'm in a new kingdom. And we just need to let that stuff die. Let God kill it. Let it die. And if it tries to rear up again, well, we just keep killing it. Now, we may have a memory of these sins, We may remember what happened, know what happened, but it won't have life anymore. It'll no longer have power. These things just need to die. So a question for you, what do you want to die in your life? Ask the Lord to give you the grace to put it to death. And I'd say, don't keep looking back trying to heal things that really need to die. I believe this is what Jesus is saying when he says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If I try to keep alive that which needs to die, then I'm going to lose everything. If I try to make sense of my own life, I'm going to lose it. That's what the Lord is saying. But if I will lose my life, if I will surrender my right to myself for him and for his sake, then I will find true life. And this is true for everyone who hears me now. If you try to make sense, find out your own life. If you try to take control of your own life, ultimately you're going to lose your life. When your spirit slips out of your body, you're going to lose everything. But if we surrender for his sake and if we abide in him, then we've got that life that goes on and on and on and on, and it's never taken away. That's eternal life And that is the new covenant, God putting his life into his people. Now, what instructions does Peter give to those who follow Jesus? I want to look at this just briefly here. 1 Peter chapter 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter continues, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. The instruction that Peter gives to us is, clothe yourselves with humility. Well, what does that really mean? Well, if we think about real clothes, when we put on clothes, that's what people see when they look at us. And Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. So that when people look at you, they see humility. We do this toward other people. We should clothe ourselves in humility so that that's what people see. And Peter says, he quotes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I often think, which side of that equation do I want to be on? God actively opposing my pride? And that's what God does. He opposes the proud. He actively opposes pride because pride leads to death. Pride is a concern for self, and he wants to save us from death and sorrow. He wants to bring life. He gives grace to the humble. He gives it. If we'll clothe ourselves in humility, then there's a flow of life that happens as we die for him. He's going to give us grace, and one definition of grace is the power to do the will of God. It's a power that gives life. It invigorates the people of God. Peter says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And when we choose humility and because God gives grace to the humble, we can cast our cares on him. Humble yourselves under his hand so that he'll lift you up. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That is the work of God. That's the character of God. As we humble ourselves, And surrender and let go, then He lifts us up. He gives life. He does it. We don't do it. He does it. It's the gift of God. However, we must be cautious. We must keep our eyes open. We must be careful. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through these hollow and empty world systems. The language is, see to it. Keep your spiritual eyes open. Let's guard ourselves so that we don't get enticed into that marketing mindset, that self-gratification mindset that says, I'm worth it, I deserve the best, I'm the consumer and the customer is always right. Well, that is not the way of God. Humble yourself under God's almighty hand, and in due time, he will lift you up. And let's remember and embrace the three conditions of walking with Jesus. Deny self, take up the cross, and follow the risen Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.